In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's so good to see everyone this morning. I'm glad, I'm glad you all made it back just like I did. Have you ever helped someone? And I don't just mean like, you know, help them cross the street when you're a Boy Scout. I mean, have you ever helped someone? Driven them to doctor's appointments? Given them money when you didn't have to? And then, rather than having your generosity returned with some kind of gratitude, a thank you, uh, can't I give you some money, uh, you know, you really don't have to do this for me. Instead, the person keeps complaining about how unfair life is, how nobody loves them, no one cares for them, and no one helps them. Maybe you've helped them to the limits of your abilities, and they wanted more, right? Come on, there's got to be a little bit more money you can help me with. Or worse, they treat you with contempt for your generosity. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now Hosea started his career as a prophet after Amos. Last week we heard God compare his people to a spouse who strays from their marriage. The children were given names about Israel's rejection of God and his rejection of them. In chapter 11, God's people are called his children. And God reminds them when they were small, he loved them, and he heard their cry. When they were in slavery in Egypt, he called them out of that slavery. But the more he calls his people to grow closer to him, the more they reject him. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Hosea was called to remind God's people that he has been faithful. He taught them to walk. He's been quietly in the background, healing and protecting them, taking care of them, and sometimes in ways that he's not taking credit for. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and I gently fed them. Think of that imagery. God is taking care of them the same way that we do an infant. Right? Infants need a lot of care and feeding, right? Anybody remember those days? You feed them, you burp them, you change their diapers. Sometimes you put them in the back of the car and you drive them around aimlessly until they fall asleep in the vain hope that after that maybe you can get some sleep. You play with them, you read to them, you cuddle them. That's how God sees his relationship to his people. But now they're turning his, their backs to him. Now Amos, who we heard a few weeks ago, called them to change their business practices, to be honest and just, and let their worship be focused on him, and not going through the motions so they can get done with worship so they can get to their next business deal. Hosea calls them to quit worshiping others. He also, in chapter 1, mentions that the kings are in trouble for the massacre at Jezreel, and I think that needs a little bit of context. In First and Second Kings, at the end of First Kings, the beginning of Second Kings, Ahab and Jezebel are the king and queen of Israel. We all know those names. Jehu was a general in the army. God sends the prophet to anoint him and tells him he's going to be the next king. So he goes and replaces Ahab's son, killing him. And then he goes and kills Jezebel. And then he goes and finds the, the king of Judah, who's not in any trouble with God, and kills him too. And the slaughter continues. And here, a hundred years later, God is telling them that they're still responsible for what happened that day. 
and he's going to let them be invaded and the kingdom will fall. He wants them to turn back to him, to be grateful for all he's done, but they won't change. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, they're all preaching in Israel at this time, all calling them to change, but they won't. And then it says, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion when he roars. His children will come trembling from the rest. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. Even with their unfaithfulness, God still loves them. Walter Brueggemann, a noted biblical scholar, says this about this passage. He says it's amongst the most remarkable oracles in the entire prophetic literature. Others have written of this passage that it penetrates deeper to the heart and mind of God than anywhere else in the Old Testament. Everything God has done for his people is out of his love for them, it's not out of obligation. He doesn't enjoy punishing them. Way back in chapter 1, we read that God said, Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. He was going to take his people back. He was going to call them back from where they were, out of his deep love for them. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. In our gospel this morning, someone comes to Jesus looking to solve a, fa to solve a family dispute about money. And Jesus wants to know when he was made the judge, when he was made the arbiter, when he was supposed to go around fixing all of these problems for people. He instead warns them to take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he gives them a parable about a rich man who builds a larger barn. Now I've heard people over the years say they're confused by why the man was being judged for using common sense. Right? If, you gain, if you're a farmer and you get more fields, you need a larger barn to store it all. Right? I've heard this parable used as a business principle. We can all name companies or restaurants that failed when their founder died. Right? As soon as the founder died, downhill it goes. Or maybe they expanded too far too fast. I've heard this parable used in business, in business meetings to explain what they needed to be doing. But I want to reread a portion this morning. The man said, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I will pour down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. For I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now what words stand out in those sentences to you? I, I heard Betty in the back say I, right? It's I, it's me, it's my. His focus is on himself and on no one else. He doesn't stop and pray to God and say, God, what should I do here? He's not focused on his family, his friends. They don't enter the equation, right? It's not God, I'm putting together all this stuff and putting it in a warehouse for my family so that we're not having to worry so much about the next year. Nope, it's all in him. He knows on earth he has the wealth and the power 
everything he needs to live a comfortable life. But he's not in ultimate control of the universe. Ben Franklin, of course, once famously wrote that there are two things guaranteed in life. Death and taxes. And the lesson is, so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now Paul here is reminding us that our focus should not be solely on our earthly life. Now he's not calling us to be, as the saying goes, of such a heavenly mind that he's no earthly good, right? We've met those people. Paul instead gives a long list of things we should put off, right? Anger, bitterness, wrath, lust. We need to put them off because we're no longer of this world. Our nature has been changed. The earthly nature is no more. We've been called to a different kingdom. And instead we put on our new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. We're being renewed daily. And not just us. In that renewal there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now the good news for all of us who were not born into the original family is that God's grace has been extended to everyone. Anyone can join simply by asking. As the psalmist wrote millennia ago, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. This morning I challenge you, keep your focus on the new kingdom. Don't let your decisions be guided solely by what's going on in the world around you. Instead, make your choices impact the world around us through our new self. And let God's love and God's mercy lead us. Amen.